Here's another inspiring speech recorded at Communities in Control, Australia's biggest and best annual community sector gathering. Thank you very much, Dennis, but uh, I do like to keep people's expectations low, and um, as an economist, that's, a, that's not hard, usually, but uh, let's see if I can change your life in some small way. Um, so, yes, it's true, I am an economist, uh, I apologise, uh, I'm also from Canberra, so sorry again. Um, <laughs> But, uh, but hopefully uh, I can uh, avoid the econobabble and speak to you today uh, about uh, not just the economy, which, let's face it, is a rather secondary concern, and you heard that from an economist, um, but more importantly, let's talk about the shape, not the size, but the shape of the country that we want to build. What kind of country do we want to live in? What kind of things do we want more of? What kind of things do we want less of? Because those questions are interesting questions that typically people feel not just able but eager to participate in. But rather than ask uh, citizens, whether it's uh, in opinion polls or each three years at an election, Rather than ask citizens, well, what is it you want? What is it you want for your country? What is it you want for your kids? How might we, uh, how might we pursue that? For reasons that I don't quite understand and perhaps will interrogate in question time, we've actually replaced that fascinating democratic conversation about what shape you want your country to be with a rather banal, rather anodyne, and I would suggest deliberately tedious conversation about the best way to maximise the rate of GDP growth. Because most people don't actually know what that means. Now, I'm not talking about you, I know you're smart, but the person sitting next to you worries me. <laughs> That's right, I don't trust them at all. <laughs> And, and that, that is the econobabbler's trick. It's to silence large numbers of people by making everybody feel that everybody else understands something that they themselves do not. So let me start with a definition. For me, econobabble is the use of economic jargon with intent. Jargon is fine. Jargon is what people who have a, a shared interest, a shared passion develop to speed up a conversation between fellow football fans or uh, fellow Game of Thrones fans or uh, fellow medical practitioners. Jargon used between consenting adults is a way to speed a conversation up. But for me, econobabble is jargon with intent. The purpose of the jargon is not to speed a conversation up, but to shut one down. The purpose of the jargon is to keep most people out of important debates about what do we, as citizens of one of the richest countries in the world, at the richest point in world history, what is it that we would like to do with this incredible wealth? And indeed, perhaps even ask the question, how come, as one of the richest countries the world has ever seen, we feel poor? Because that's a pretty good trick. That's a pretty good trick. Now, I'm not saying there aren't poor people in Australia. 
I'm saying that on average, the income of Australians dwarfs that of nearly everybody in the world. And that on average, the income in Australia dwarfs that of an Australian 40 years ago. But do we feel richer than we felt 40 years ago? Or now do we find it hard to fund the simple public services that 40 years ago we found it easy to provide? That's a pretty good trick to make that many people feel that stressed and that poor that we don't even ask ourselves how it came to be. So a conner babble is not just the use of economic jargon, which is fine, I can jargon all day, but I wouldn't jargon at someone that had no idea what the shorthand meant. Now, economists didn't invent this trick. Catholic priests preached to the working class in Latin for centuries. <laughs> it wasn't to help. <laughs> It wasn't to help open up a debate about ethics or morality or anything else. It was designed to make sure that the bloke, and it was a bloke up on the podium, did a good job of making everybody else stay in their place. But democracy is different from that. Our political leaders need your vote. Our political leaders need your support. Yet, were you to tune into Q&A, a task I spare myself, um, you, would, you would hear every week elected politicians, brackets, almost none of whom are economists, speaking to an audience, brackets, nearly all of whom are not economists, speaking to each other in the strangest language, a language that neither speaker nor listener speaks, and that is econobabble. But this is not an accident. It's not an accident because were the questioner to stand up and say, well, my son's disabled and I can't believe that in a country like Australia we can't provide uh, better quality care for him and I can't believe that five years ago they actually were getting better care. Why is that, Minister? Well, you know, we live in these straightened times and certainly because of the liquidity constraints that followed the global financial crisis, what we've all seen, not just in Australia but globally, is the tightening in the capacity of the federal government. What he meant to say was, it's not a priority. We don't want to. We're spending money on other things. Or... We think cutting taxes and having less revenue is more important than looking after your son. That's it. <laughs> There's nothing more to it than that. We can spend $50 billion to build 12 new submarines to replace the six we haven't used yet. <laughs> and you've never heard about the funding spending gap but, oh, the NDIS, oh, yes, yes, it's blown out and there's a funding gap. Well, have you ever heard of a defence procurement project that didn't blow out? It's OK. Like, we're a democracy. We don't have to spend money on disabled people. We don't have to spend money on domestic violence shelters for women. We don't have to spend money on, spending, on looking after uh, kids from disadvantaged backgrounds and making sure they have a good education. There is no constitutional requirement to do any of those things. But if we wanted to, we would collect the revenue that we wanted and we would spend it on those things. And if we don't want to, then we should look ourselves 
in the face and say we don't want to. We had a budget less than a month ago, and not many people watch because, oh, budgets, economics y stuff, blah, blah, blah. You know what I call budget night? Who gets the 400 billion? That's what happens on budget night. Because every year the Commonwealth Government spends $400 billion on stuff. Did you get the stuff you wanted? Well, you should have watched the budget. And then you could see who did get the stuff. Because someone's getting the stuff. We're one of the richest countries in the world. There's plenty of stuff. There's plenty of money. There's just not enough money for you. And I blame the person sitting next to you. Because <laughs> the money doesn't get flushed down the toilet. It gets flushed into somebody's pocket. And if it's not yours, it's someone else's. So not only don't we worry about the $50 billion cost of building 12 new submarines, and by the way, I don't care, build, build 15, they're not even dear. I'll come back to how small $50 billion is in a minute. That is not a large amount of money, and only an economist can tell you that. <laughs> but we're about to drop $50 billion on tax cuts for big business. Right? It's got nothing to do with fixing the budget deficit. It's going to make the deficit bigger. But that's okay, because that's part of the plan as well. Because it's actually hard to get a large group of people, certainly hard to get 24 million people, to agree to cut spending on health and education. Because people overwhelmingly like it. Do you know the best way to get people to agree to cut, cut spend less money on essential services? Isn't the best way to get people to do that is... Well, let's go early to q and I'm asking you the questions. What's the easy way to get people to agree to do something they don't want to do? Fear? What are they afraid of? Pain? You're getting the hang of it? <laughs> Tell them they're broke. You know what the best way to cause a budget deficit is? Cause a budget deficit. <laughs> Cut taxes. You cut taxes for enough years, you'll get deficits, and then you turn around and go, oh, I've got a deficit. <laughs> Going to have to cut spending. You think that conservatives hate budget deficits. Conservatives love budget deficits. Budget deficits are the stick with which to beat your expectations down. That is the purpose of a budget deficit. Look, look, we've got more going out than coming in. We have to cut spending on popular important things. Don't mention the submarines. We have no choice but to cut spending on, on, the, on the disabled and the poor and the old, but not the submarines. We have no choice. The economy, the budget is in deficit because we cut taxes massively. It's not hard. You don't have to be an economist to ask simple questions like, if we're broke, why don't we collect some more tax? But the answer, if you ask, why don't we collect some more tax, will be a great big dose of econobabble, I guarantee you. Oh, well, that would destroy incentive and foreign firms wouldn't invest in Australia and then what we'd find is that productivity would fall and in the long run the cake would wind up smaller and that's why your kid can't get help. It doesn't mean anything. We've been told for so long in Australia that we're a high-tax country that even though the internet exists, we believe it. <laughs> right? I know, there's this 
communist, what's it called? The uh, IMF, that's right, the International Monetary Fund. And they've got something called a website that no one in the parliamentary press gallery has access to. And <laughs> what it shows is that Australia is what we call a low-tax country. But if we call ourselves a high-tax country for long enough and call people like me lefties when I point to the IMF website, we might be able to convince a lot of people that the reason we can't afford to spend money is because we're poor rather than because we don't want to. Now, to be clear, lying is a good strategy, comma, sometimes. Um, I lie to my children when I don't want to do things. <laughs> so, for my example, my six-year-old says, Dad, why don't we go to Disneyland for a holiday? A thought that shocks me. I might say, that's a great idea, son, but we can't afford to go. Well, I'm comfortably middle class, and if I wanted to waste money and go without things I do think are important, we probably could go to Disneyland. But rather than say, son, your priorities differ from mine, <laughs> I just lie and say we can't afford to. But he doesn't get a vote in whether I'm his dad. And you do get a vote as to whether the people that say we can't afford to spend money on insert your priority here, you do have a vote for them. And they're lying to you when they say that we, quote, can't afford to do it. Now, because we've been told that we're a high-tax country and our high taxes are already burdening us so much that we've become uncompetitive and it's our high taxes that make us uncompetitive and that's why we can't afford to produce anything, especially manufacturing, because we're so high-tax and uncompetitive, I usually say, has anyone here ever seen a Volvo? Anyone here ever seen a Volvo? How about a BMW? See, I can't get my head around this because Volvos come from this strange mystical country called Sweden that has much higher taxes than us. And BMWs and Mercedes come from this weird hypothetical thing called a Germany. And what you find about this hypothetical Germany is it too has higher taxes than us, yet somehow it still seems to manage to make things. Yet we've actually been telling ourselves for decades now, decades, that because our taxes are so high, that's why we can't make anything here. Now, there are lots of reasons that we might not make as much stuff here as we used to, but I assure you that one of them is not the tax rate. And if it was, it would be hard to explain how the highest tax countries in the world, let's call it Northern Europe, has anyone been? Has anyone been to this mystical land? I'm not making it up, it does exist, and I know you've seen at least one Volvo in your life. So if it was true that high taxes were the reason we couldn't make anything, you would, you would think that there would be no country that had even higher taxes than ours that made something, but there is. So the answer can't be centrally related to tax. That's why econobabble is so important. Econobabble is designed to keep you out of public debate. Now, how am I going for time, Dennis? Ten more, Ten more minutes. Good. See, I don't use PowerPoint. I think power corrupts and PowerPoint corrupts absolutely, um, <laughs> which allows me to always finish on time. So at some point, Dennis will say, Richard, it's time to stop. And I'll say, well, that's exactly where I was. I was just about to wrap up. Uh, so you keep that in mind. So how is it? How has it come to be that here we are, some of the richest people in the world are feeling so poor, 
and believe things like the reason that the manufacturing industry left Australia was tax rates, even though the manufacturing industry is thriving in countries with much higher tax rates than ours. How could this be? Well, central to it, as I said at the intro, is the way that we've actually stripped away simple questions about what kind of country we'd like to have, what we'd like to have more of, what we'd ha like to have less of, and then judge politicians by their ability to deliver those things for us. We've actually replaced that whole fascinating, important and usually interesting democratic conversation with a boring conversation about econobabble and statistics that almost no one understands. So uh, I know, again, that you're probably right across this, but put up your hand if you're worried that no one else in the room actually knows what the Hung Sing or the Nikai Dao really is. <laughs> put up your hand if you're worried about other people. <laughs> oh, no, OK, most people think everyone else is pretty smart in here, OK. Well, you can tune into the news each night and learn about what happened to the markets. We'll come back to the markets in a second. But you can tune in there at 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock on the news. There it is. Because people that own a lot of money in shares or have a lot of money invested in shares wouldn't kind of track that on something like a smartphone through the day, would they? <laughs> They'd all be rushing home to watch the 5 o'clock news <laughs> to find out how the Hung Seng went or the Nikkei. But... Anyone here who's ever tried to get a story up on the news about, I don't know, the complete fundamental spectacular failure of our society to invest in quality care for people who need it, you'll know how hard it is to get a minute or two on the, nine, on the six o'clock news. That's some expensive real estate. So why every night on the news are we getting information that has almost no bearing on anyone in this room's life? And anyone who actually did care about it probably isn't hanging out to find out from Channel 10 how their portfolio performed through the day. What's that there for? What's all that talk about how the market's doing? Who's listening to that? Next time you hear the journalists turn on now to the markets, just ask yourself, I wonder who in the world gives an insert word here? I don't <laughs> know you well enough to insert my preferred word. Because that conversation about the markets and how the markets are doing, and more importantly, or more bizarrely, how the markets are feeling. Feeling. How are the markets feeling anxious? <laughs> the markets are anxious. The markets were nervous. Maybe the markets were upbeat. <laughs> Let's just break down this most important piece of econobabble. When we hear that the markets were feeling angry, or the markets responded, uh, responded negatively, what on earth are we talking about? Let me just help you. Has anyone here ever been to a fish market? Okay, I want you to picture a fish market. Ah, big shed, probably tin, cold, smells like fish. Beautiful thing about a fish market is there's people there that want to buy fish. There's people there that want to sell fish. They come together. That's what a market is. A market is a place where buyers and sellers come together. So imagine you're in the fish market, smelling the fish, wishing you wore a jumper. <laughs> now ask yourself the following question. I wonder how the fish market feels. 
I wonder what the fish market wants. Now, don't get me wrong. I reckon I know what the people in the fish market want. They want to sell some fish or they want to buy some fish. But it actually makes no sense to even consider the question, what does the fish market want? Well, now I want you to pull the word fish out and insert the word share. And let's ask ourselves, what does the share market want? Or oh, lower taxes, lower wages, wants the government to cut spending, does it? Can I talk to the share market? Where, where would I find him or her? Does he, does he or she type out his feelings? Where exactly does the share market make their feelings known? Oh, through rich people who own a lot of shares. What's a fish market? A place where people buy and sell fish. What's a share market? A place where people who buy and sell shares. Now, when we hear that the share market reacted negatively, it's as if there's Zeus and Apollo are about to chuck some lightning bolts at us for offending them. No, seriously, the whole point of talking about the market is, is, is to take the most important words out, some people. So the fact that a bunch of people who own a lot of shares reacted angrily at suggestions that they pay more tax is probably a sentiment you can understand. Might be a sentiment you're sympathetic to. Might be a sentiment you couldn't give a rat's about. But hearing that some people who own a lot of shares are angry sounds a bit different from the market reacted angrily, doesn't it? It's not an accident we talk about what the market wants. It allows us to never have a conversation about what you want. It's designed to keep you out of the conversation. And what scares me is that a lot of our politicians don't even know this. They actually talk about it like they're talking about the Greek gods or someone else. Oh, that's, yes, Richard, we, you know, well, maybe Sweden does exist. <laughs> and maybe they do have higher taxes than ours and still make cars. But, but the market would react, the market would mark us down. If, if we were to increase taxes. Now, that's fine. Just admit it. We don't want to increase taxes because we don't want to spend more money on the sick or the poor or the disabled. We don't want to. That's fine. It's a democracy. Sweden's got tax to GDP ratio of nearly 50%. Right? There are countries with 12. We're at 24. We're not a high-tax country. And there are countries with much smaller public sectors than ours. It's, it's a democracy. We get a choice. But as I said at the beginning, if we can keep you all out of that democratic choice, then it's much easier for those that do feel they get listened to to get away with it. To wrap up, I was here for the previous session and someone was talking about, you know, how do you change people's minds? How do you influence a politician? I think it's really simple. Um, there's only two things that politicians respond to. Pain <laughs> and the threat of pain. <laughs> That's it. Everything else is just pretending to listen. Now, get me right. That's OK. It's a democracy. 
Their job is to represent people. Their job is to make decisions on our collective behalf. Their job is to say, no, we can't go to Disneyland every year. Because we can't. All right, we're one of the richest countries in the world. We can do anything we want, but we can't do everything we want. We have to make hard choices. And if some groups in the community are really, really good at making a lot of noise and complaining and switching their votes every time they don't get heard, and there's another group in the community that are really, really good at kind of going, oh, it's terrible, isn't it? I know, but there's no point and there's nothing we can do about it. Well, if you were a politician, who would you respond to? People often tell me, you know, they say, oh, there's no point writing a letter to a politician or going to see them. I'm like, oh, why not? Oh, they never listen. Oh, what do you say? And you should say something like, well, I, you know, I say, oh, I hate you and I've always hated you and <laughs> your crap and after that thing you did yesterday, I hate you even more. I say, well, there's one approach. <laughs> Try this one. Why not go and talk to them and start with, I love you. You're great. I've always voted for you, so has my whole family. But on this one issue, oh, you lost me. If you don't change your mind, I'm going to have to change my vote. You'll get another meeting. It's a politician's job to listen to people who don't just say, I hate you, I wish the world was different. It's their job to change their mind before you change your vote. That's actually how democracy works. So to conclude, you're not all going to get everything you want. In fact, I reckon the people on this side of the room probably don't even agree with half of the people on this side of the room about what the priority should be. But it's the job of a politician and it's a job of a government to actually cobble together the best we think we can come up with. And the reason that we find it so hard to come up with anything any good in Australia anymore is because for so long we've been told that it's just not on the menu to go and collect more resources so that we can spend more money. It is on the menu. Whether we choose it or not is a democratic thing. But there's no way you're going to have Sweden's level of health and education on Taiwan's tax rates. Okay, that, that does not add up. That's not economable, that's just honesty. That's just priorities. But if, and it's a big if, we were willing to collect about the average amount of tax collected by OECD countries, then I reckon we could spend enough money to make nearly everyone in this room think that their organisation could do a better job of helping people who really need it. Thank you very much. We hope you've enjoyed this highlight from the community's In Control Library. If you did, we'd love you to rate or review this podcast in the iTunes Store and for you to share it with your friends. For further information about Communities In Control, visit communitiesincontrol.com.au.